0: Well, we're not going to talk about holy habits this morning. I noticed that was up there. Um, just so you know, like, man, does this guy can't get off that subject. What is his problem? He just keeps talking about this holy habits stuff. Well, this morning I want to talk with you just for a few minutes about biblical revival. And to do that, I want you to turn to Nehemiah chapter 8. Nehemiah chapter 8. And um, just what we... Prayed for uh, what we um, sought the Lord for, what we longed for last week, and I feel like we 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 got a little taste of that. And I think the the staff and students that were there at at Camp Revive, I think you would all agree something special happened uh, during that week of camp, especially that last night of camp, and 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 that's. That's not something that you can manufacture. Um, You can't plan for. You can't program revival, right? It either happens or doesn't happen. And and, uh, everything I've ever read about revival, um, it it really starts with one thing, and that's prayer. Um, Some people, a person, or some people, a group of people get burdened by the Lord, for him to do something special, for him to do something unique, something powerful, to, to change lives, that people would get saved, that people, Christians, save people would be stirred up. And so they begin to pray. And, um, and I think it's as a result of those prayers that God oftentimes blesses um, churches, youth groups, um, cities, towns, countries, right, with uh, colleges, universities, uh, with, with a revival. But uh, there's also an accompanying, accompanying factor to prayer. Uh, it's not just prayer. I think prayer is often the initiation of that revival. But it also typically happens as a result of the preaching of God's Word, and, and as I mentioned to you earlier, um, this, this uh, past week, I just had a chance to just preach the gospel, and I don't think I said anything that these students have ever never heard before. I, I, probably not one of them can say they learned something new, um, but it was maybe just the way the Word was taught and the way the Spirit of God accompanied the preaching of God's Word, something happened. Something special, something powerful. And it just got me thinking about the dynamics of biblical revival. What are the what are the requirements for revival? What are some of the marks of revival? What are some of the results of revival? What would be a prescription for revival? Well, we've already mentioned you gotta pray, right? And we knew that people were praying for us all week. And so we had that going for us. Um, but what what else do we have going for us? We well the centerpiece of the camp, the, the the main focus of the camp, and really the highlight of the day, was our evening gatherings where this thing right here was proclaimed. And um, and so we see a, a similar dynamic here in Nehemiah chapter eight, a, a passage you I'm assuming you're familiar with, but kind of smack dab in the middle of this. Um, uh, story of Nehemiah rebuilding the walls of Jerusalem, we have an account of a biblical revival. Notice how Nehemiah records it, Nehemiah 8, 1, and all the people gather as one man at the square, which was in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. He read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday, in the presence of men and women, those who could understand, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium, which they had made for the purpose, and beside him stood, and I'm just going to leave those names unread, because I don't want to butcher them, okay, but there was a group of guys standing on his right, and, and a group of guys standing on his left. Ezra opened the book, verse 5, in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people. And when he opened it, all the people stood up. And Ezra blessed the Lord, the great God, and all the people answered, Amen and Amen, while lifting up their hands when they bowed low, then they bowed low and worshiped the Lord with their faces to the ground. And then another list of men here um, who accompanied Ezra. They explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. Verse 8, they read from the book from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to all the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep, for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. Then he said to them, go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, and send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our Lord. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Father, thank you for this account of um, revival. Uh, in, in, in the nation of, of Israel. I pray that as we consider the, the characteristics here that mark this revival, Lord, that you would be gracious to sustain the revival that we uh, sensed that you sparked at camp. And uh, Lord, that you would uh, bring that back here and uh, continue it. Lord, sustain it by your grace for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, some of you, I hope, have been reading that book uh, by Donald Whitney this summer, uh, Spiritual Disciplines for the Christian Life, right? We encourage you to read that along with our uh, Holy Habit series that we were doing on on Wednesdays, which kind of spilled over unexpectedly into into Sunday mornings. Um, But uh, Donald Whitney also wrote another book called Spiritual Disciplines Within the Church, uh, in other words, uh, there there was so much to talk about when it came to the discipline of the church and what is involved in in the holy habit of being a part of a local body. He wrote an entire book just about the spiritual disciplines within the church, and uh, he he has one chapter in that book entitled "Why Listening Why Listen to Preaching in the Church." That's a good question, right? Have you ever asked yourself why why, why do you come in this? Why do we when we come together? Why is the main part of our service every time, whether it's on Sunday or Wednesday. It's the preaching of God's Word. Why is that? And why do, you, why do you come to listen to that? Well, this is his answer, or part of his answer. He says, "...throughout church history, all the greatest movements of God in saving people and strengthening his church have been built upon great God-anointed preaching." The colossal transformation in the church that occurred through the Reformers, Luther, Calvin, Zwingli, etc., was a work of God upon souls through preaching. When the first great awakening blazed through England and the American colonies, it began burning from and was sustained by the fiery pulpits of men such as Whitfield, Wesley, Edwards, and others. The second great awakening, when the wind of God blew across America for several decades in the early 1800s, was also fundamentally the blessing of God upon preaching. In almost every case where large numbers of people have been converted in a concentrated period, it has been as a result of the message preached. And then he said this, when the fire of God falls, the flashpoint is the pulpit. And that's exactly what happened here in Nehemiah chapter 8. This is a chapter about uh, a spiritual revival that broke out among God's people as a result of the preaching of God's word. Now, when you think about the book of Nehemiah, probably this is not what comes to your mind first, right? We usually think about Nehemiah leading the, re, the, the exiles from Babylon to, to come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, and uh, he did it in an amazing record time, 52 days, they rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. However, according to Nehemiah's memoirs, which these are, um, the walls were completed at the end of chapter 6, and uh, he goes on to continue writing and recording uh, for seven more chapters. There's 13 chapters here. So what that means is that even though the walls were finished, Nehemiah's work had only just begun. His first priority was to reconstruct the walls. But that simply served as a starting point for his ultimate priority, which was to reconsecrate the people of Israel. Now, if you know anything about their history, right, the nation uh, had been uh, almost completely destroyed by the Babylonian invasion. Uh, They were totally demoralized as a result of of having to spend 70 years of exile uh, under uh, foreign oppression in Babylon. Those, uh, on top of that, those who had been allowed to return to their homeland, were under this great distress as, as they were rebuilding these walls, which you think that would have been an encouraging thing. Well, they were being threatened uh, and opposed uh, by the surrounding uh, countries. Um, not much has changed in Israel today, has it? Um, but they were experiencing these threats and, and, and this opposition. And so not only did they lack morale as a people, they also lacked morals. You see, the moral and and spiritual condition of that remnant was deplorable because during their time in exile, compromise had crept into Jewish society and people had drifted away from God's law. They weren't living in accordance to God's word. And so the the Jews lacked the purity and the vibrancy that they once enjoyed as God's people. And so, so Nehemiah's plan was to fix that. He wanted to restore the nation of Israel to its original spiritual condition, and so the first step was to repopulate the capital city of Jerusalem. Well, before he could do that, he had to rebuild the walls, right? So it would be a safe place for people to live. They'd want to come back. And so uh, the repopulation really doesn't take place until chapter 11, but uh, in the previous chapter, chapter 7, we see uh, a transition taking place. between the reconstruction of the walls and, and the reconsecration of the people. So in chapter 7, we see uh, the, the, the conclusion of the construction and the introduction to the consecration of, of the people. And, and, and really, chapter 8 uh, could be summarized in one simple principle. Okay, Here's the principle. The key to the consecration of God's people is the exposition of God's word. The key to the consecration, the purifying, the setting apart of God's people is the exposition of God's word. Listen to what Bruce Milne said in his little um, uh, systematic theology called Know the Truth. He said, nothing is more calculated to bring renewal of life Vigor and faith of the church in any generation than the unleashing of God's everlasting word in the midst of his people through the ministry of expiatory preachers anointed by his Holy Spirit. Well, the truth of that statement is verified by the revival that took place among God's people in this chapter as a result of the clear, accurate, practical exposition of Scripture. And I think this, is, uh, this chapter is really one of the best examples in the entire Bible of, of what expository preaching looks like. And in fact, I would say that this is where we find the biblical basis for expository preaching. Verse 8, they read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. I've told you in the past that I think it's the very simple task simple on one hand very difficult on the other but the very a pastor should simply get up right and and read a text of scripture explain the text of scripture make application of the text of scripture and then sit down <laughs> that's the job of a preacher read the text explain the text and sit down that that's that's the job and so if if you were to ask the average churchgoer today um what is expository preaching, you'd probably get a blank stare, right? You kind of get the deer in the headlights, uh, what are you talking about, right? Not only is the term expository uh, a foreign concept to to many contemporary Christians, but even the word preaching is fast becoming an obsolete term. In fact, uh, some churches are, are just kind of removing it from their language because they don't want to come across as preachy, right? People don't want to go and listen to preaching, um, and so let's not call it preaching, let's call it dialoguing, let's call it conver- having a conversation, and let's not call uh, you know, messages sermons, let's call them talks. And these typically light, topical, uplifting, entertaining talks um, offer practical advice for the relevant issues. All of us deal with in life, right? And there's some good stuff that's being said about marriage and relationships and family and parenting and and finances, but unfortunately, this thing is becoming uh, perceived more as a self-help manual than it is the Word of God. And in order to hold the short attention span of today's media-engrossed generation, oftentimes these, these talks are sprinkled with lots of jokes and stories, and, and, and they're often enhanced by skits or video clips or elaborate stage sets, right, and all sorts of visual aids. And whenever I see that, I, I, I think, well, apparently you have lost confidence in this, that This has the power. This is powerful and relevant enough to do the job. doesn't need any help, right? Now, again, there's nothing wrong with showing a video or doing a skit or having some visual aids, right? But unfortunately, it seems today that more and more pastors are seeing their job as to get up and share their heart. I'm here to share my heart today rather than explaining God's heart. Right? Speaking forth God's heart as revealed in His Word. And so much of what is done under the guise of preaching today, I think, is what Paul called peddling the Word of God. And so consequently, many in the church today are suffering from what we could call spiritual malnutrition, malnutrition. The church is not very healthy, right, kind of sickly, weak, from a lack of hearing the Word of God. And so the solution to this dilemma within the church today is, is preaching that directly and discernibly comes from the Bible. It, it clearly, accurately explains the Bible, and it practically practically, and relevantly applies the Bible to everyday life. I, I've said this before, that how, how can you, how, what's a good test of whether or not you're sitting under uh, sound teaching, um, whatever you call it, expository preaching, whatever you want to call it. Are you sitting under biblical preaching? Well, the question is, do you have to bring this with you to church? That's that's always a good sign, good test, right? If you're sitting under biblical preaching, you're probably going to need this, okay? And, And you're going to want to bring it. And then also, when you're sitting there during the message, you're actually going to have to look at your Bible. You're actually going to have to turn places and look and make sure, oh yeah that's what he's saying he's explaining that word that phrase right that 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 the word is being preached but if you can if you can go to church and not have to bring your Bible and 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 uh, and never have to use your Bible right you're probably not here in the Bible, or you're real lazy, one of the two right um, or maybe you're an unbeliever, hey we're glad you're here, right you didn't bring your Bible and and uh, we're glad you're here because hopefully you'll Get a love for God's word. Wayne Grudem said this in his Bible Doctrine book. He said, Throughout the history of the church, the greatest preachers have been those who have been, or who excuse me, have seen their task as being to explain the words of Scripture and apply them clearly to the lives of their hearers. Essentially, they stood in the pulpit, pointed to the biblical text, and said, in effect, to the congregation, this is what this verse means. Do you see the meaning here as well? Then you must believe it and obey it with all your heart, for God himself, your creator and your Lord, is saying this to you today. I love that. He really nails the gravity of preaching, that it's not just listening to some guy go go off on some Sunday morning, right? No, it's it's God speaking to you through through his word. And this is really the essence of of expository preaching and and is precisely what we see modeled here in this chapter, One commentator says it really well. He says Ezra and his helpers were the first in a long line of expiratory preachers who explained the Bible. This method of preaching has been blessed by God down through the centuries and continues to be an effective instrument for bringing Christians to spiritual maturity and I would add in bringing non-Christians to Christ topical and textual preaching may often be inspiring and helpful, but the spiritual benefits do not compare with those resulting from a preaching ministry like Ezra's. Blessed indeed are the believers who are privileged to sit under expository preaching of the scriptures. Hopefully you would say amen to that statement. However, not everyone would say that. Not everyone agrees with that. In fact, this is shocking. This is um, a quote from a pastor um, back in the 1920s, this is 1928. Um, just to let you know, this is not a, a contemporary issue here. This is an ongoing issue within the church. But this is a, a guy named Harry Emerson Fosdick, who was a, probably one of the most famous pastors in the 20s and 30s. He he pastored a church in New York called Riverside Church, I believe it was. And it was a, a, a church that Rockefeller had actually funded and founded and funded, and, and uh, he, this was his kind of golden boy preacher. But, but listen to what Fosdick says, and, and, and hopefully you're in tune enough with this issue to be stunned by the things that he says here. He says, many preachers indulge habitually in what they call expository sermons. <laughs> okay, so you already kind of know, and he's played his card, right? doesn't think highly of expository preaching. They take a passage from Scripture and proceeding on the assumption that the people attending church that morning are deeply concerned about what the passage means, they spend their half hour or more on a historical exposition of the verse or chapter, ending with some appended practical application to the auditors. Could any procedure be more surely predestined to dullness and futility?" Who seriously supposes that, as a matter of fact, one in a hundred of the congregation cares to start with what Moses, Isaiah, Paul, or John meant in those special verses or came to church deeply concerned about it? Nobody else who talks to the public so assumes that the vital interests of the people are located in the meaning of words spoken 2,000 years ago. The advertisers of any goods from a five-foot shelf of classic books to the latest life insurance policy plunge directly as possible after contemporary wants, felt needs, actual interests, and concerns. Preachers who pick out text from the Bible and then proceed to give their historical settings their logical meaning in the context, their place in the theology of the writer with a few practical reflections appended, are grossly misusing the Bible." You read that and you go, are, are you kidding? Well, guess what? He was probably the uh, probably the uh, was way ahead of his time when it came to the seeker sensitive movement, right? I mean, he he had that kind of church that says the people would line up out the door to come hear him preach. And his primary contention was that that the preaching in his day was failing to make any kind of connection with real interest and and the needs of the people. It was irrelevant. It was ineffective. Well, I couldn't disagree more um, regarding the, the relevance and effectiveness of expository preaching because we need to believe with all of our hearts that, that what we need as God's people more than anything else is, is not just some self-help right, advice, um, but we need to hear the clear, accurate, practical explanation and application of the Word of God. How are we going to know, right, what we need to be or be who God wants us to be if we don't know what God wants us to know. And so that's why we must be people of the book, okay? And I like that expression because that's where these people were, Nehemiah chapter 8, right? They asked Ezra to bring the book. Love that. They were seeking to be revived through God's word. For Psalm 119, 107, one of the theme verses of our camp was, Revive me, O Lord, according to your word. And so here in chapter 8 of Nehemiah, he shows us I'm not sure if there are requirements of revival and/or results of revival. I think there's a little of both. In other words, if you want revival, these factors need to be involved. And if you experience revival, these will be the results. This is what it will look like. So I've just listed here four marks, results, requirements, whatever you want to say, of revival, okay? And the first one is to revere the Word, to revere the Word, have a high regard for the Word of God. Notice quickly the, 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 the verses that come immediately before chapter 8. Verse 73 of chapter 7, Now the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, some of the people, the temple servants, all of Israel lived in their cities. And when the seventh month came, the sons of Israel were in their cities. So that's a key uh, term there when it says in the seventh month. Okay, that gives us kind of the the setting here. It was September, October, uh, which was the most sacred month of the Jewish uh, calendar. Um, It it was uh, during that month the seventh month that they would celebrate the Feast of Trumpets, um, which was the one we're going to see celebrated here, uh, and then also the Day of Atonement, and then also the Feast of Booze. So three biggies. These are three of the biggest Jewish holidays, and they all happened in the seventh month. This was kind of the uh, Jewish equivalent to our New Year's. Okay, A lot of stuff kicking off here. And so in the celebration of the Feast of Trumpets, um, which symbol, uh, symbolized the regathering of Israel from among the, the Gentile nations, which is that's just what had happened, right? Coming back from exile, so Nehemiah uh, schedules a Bible conference, okay, kind of as a, as a celebration of the Feast of Trumpets, also as a celebration of, hey, we finished the walls, let's celebrate, and so he invites um, Ezra, the scribe, to be the special speaker, the guest speaker. Um, and 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 you'll notice that Nehemiah, in this section, refers to himself in the third person. It's no longer I, I did this, my me. You know, he's talking now in the third person. Why? Because Ezra is now the main character of these few chapters. Now, you say, who's Ezra? Well, Ezra was a contemporary of Nehemiah, uh, who had been ministering the word in Jerusalem for 14 years prior uh, to Nehemiah having returned to rebuild the walls. Ever since. Uh, he had led the second return. There were three returns. There was Zerubbabel. He brought the first group to rebuild the temple. And then Ezra brought the second group of, of, of exiles back from Babylon to basically reconsecrate the temple. He brought all the elements of the temple, the, 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 the instruments of the temple. He brought the Levites back. And so they were going to reinstitute the worship uh, in the temple. Um, and, and so uh, th- that, ever since then, he had been faithfully and prayerfully teaching the Jewish people God's law. Now, I love what it says about Ezra back in Ezra chapter seven, verse nine. You're familiar with this verse, it says the good hand of, of Ezra, or excuse me, the good hand of, of of his God was upon him. This is the description of Ezra. The good hand of, of of his God was upon him. Why? For Ezra had set his heart to study the law of the Lord and to practice it and to teach his statutes and ordinances to Israel. I love that, right? This is a man who, who, who had a passion for the Word of God, and, and he spent his life studying the law, and, and, and notice before he went and taught it, what was he trying to do? He was trying to live it out himself. He was trying to practice it. He was trying to apply it, and then he would teach it to, to others. What a great example for us of, of a diligent, how to be a diligent student and, and, and applier and liver of God's Word. But um, anyway, so this, apparently this two-month building program that they had to to build the walls kind of, Ezra had to kind of put a halt on his teaching ministry. Um, But as soon as they they were done, they clamored to hear more teaching from Ezra. They had a hunger for for the Word of God. And so uh, less than one week after the walls are completed, it says, verse 8, chapter 8, verse 1, all the people gathered as one man. At the square, which is in front of the water gate, and they asked Ezra the scribe to bring the book of the law of Moses, which the Lord had given to Israel. So they, they say that it was probably estimated 42,000 people gathered together for this historic event. I mean, you can imagine the atmosphere was electric there, and they tell them to bring the book. I love that. After spending almost two long, hard months rebuilding the walls, the people wanted to be refreshed with the word of God. And so they cried out for the exposition of scripture. And to Ezra, that was like saying, sick him, right? To a mad dog. He's like, you betcha. And notice verse 2. Then Ezra the priest brought the law before the assembly of men, women, and all who could listen with understanding. Notice the word understanding is used multiple times. Uh, That's kind of the point. You you don't just read the Bible. uh, You need to explain the Bible. You need to help people understand the scriptures. And so it says that, that, that all those who could listen with understanding on the first day of the seventh month. And so uh, it says, he read from it before the square, which was in front of the water gate from early morning until midday And the friends of men and women, those who could understand, there it is again, and all the people were attentive to the book of the law. So here's, here's, here's as we're getting up at the crack of dawn, right? All the way to noontime, about six hours, seven days straight, These people were willing to devote half a day, uh, right, for an entire week to to hear the word read and taught, and they remained attentive the entire time. And some of us have a hard time staying attentive for like 45 minutes on Sunday morning, right? And notice it says in in, in verse 4, Ezra the scribe stood at a wooden podium which they had made for this purpose. I mean, you get this picture of this high and lofty stage that that had been custom built for this momentous occasion. It was large enough to hold not only Ezra but thirteen other people—six on his right, right, and and seven on his left. I get the the image in my mind is the the when they build the um, the stage for the, the the presidential inauguration, right? They build it on the Capitol steps, and it's just this massive stage that kind of looms over the the lawn in front, and the and the crowds like. It looks real small down there. And the president's way up there, right? And he's speaking, and all the people are out there. And that's, that's kind of the picture, the image here. Martin Luther said that the pulpit is the throne of the Word of God. I love that. The pulpit is the throne of the Word of God. And notice, they instinctively stood up. Verse 5, Ezra opened the book in the sight of all the people, for he was standing above all the people, and when he opened it, all the people stood up. They instinctively rose in honor uh, of God's word. Why? They had a reverence for the scriptures. I've heard that in some churches in in Europe in in the olden days, that, that part of their service Right, We all have different things we do during service. Churches have like, you know, the, okay, here's the communion time, here's the offering time, here's the singing time, here's the preaching time. Well, there was actually a part of the service where somebody in the back would come in holding the word of God, carrying it to the front and setting it down on the pulpit for, for, to prepare uh, the, the people for the message. And, and it just showed the honor right the, the, and the reverence that they had for the word of God. John Calvin said this, we owe to Scripture the same reverence which we owe to God because it's proceeded from Him alone. And so if you want to have revival in your heart, um, you have to have a reverence for the Word of God. You need to revere the Word of God. And and listen, if, 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 if there is revival going in your heart, you will revere the Word of God. There'll be a special honor and respect that you give to the Scriptures. Number two, you need to receive the word. Not only do you need to revere the word, you need to receive the word. Notice verses seven and eight. Again, here's a list of these guys that were helping Ezra, and it says, specifically, verse seven, they explained the law to the people while the people remained in their place. They read from the book, from the law of God, translating to give the sense so that they understood the reading. Now, uh, this was not just providing a translation from Hebrew to Aramaic, which most of the people might have been speaking in those days, but they were interpreting it so that the people understood what it meant and how it applied to their lives. Again, they were explaining Scripture and applying Scripture, expository preaching. That's what we mean by that. And, 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 and you know as well as I do, listen, we are living many centuries later, right, in, in a completely different uh, culture with a completely different language, how much more does the preacher have to work at explaining, right, the scriptures? Because there's this huge gap between when it was written and where we're at today. And so uh, I think um, you could liken the preacher to a tour guide, right? And it's our job as preachers to, to lead you back into time, to, a, uh, to the time of a particular text uh, when it was written and explain the historical and cultural and, and, and geographic context, but not leave you there, Right? Which, this is where expository preaching gets a bum rap, right? Because sometimes all you get uh, you know, from an expositor is some data dump, and so you're left in the Holy Land covered with all this rubble of geographic information and historical information, and yeah, but I- I'm having a fight with my wife. Uh, help me with that, okay? Or, or I got a wayward kid. Help me with that. Uh, or, or you know what? I- I'm about to go bankrupt. Help me with that, Right? And so it's it's very important that a, that as a tour guide right you lead them to back into the land of the bible but you better bring them back out of there right with something that they can take home with them and apply to their lives in the here and now. By the way notice the balance here between the public exposition of the word in a large assembly, right? Here's here's Ezra on this big podium and he's preaching God's word. And But then it seems here that these other helpers, okay, what they would do is they would go off... And, and the group would get broken up into smaller groups, and they would continue explaining and applying the scriptures uh, to these uh, kind of in a, in, a, in a smaller group. And so, hey, there's a method to our madness when it comes to uh, our, our grow group ministry, right? That we, we, we love people to come to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, but man, we, we encourage you guys to get into grow group, a small group. And we also encourage you to take those application questions in the back, right, and, and, and go through those things in your small group. Why? Because we want to help you apply the scriptures, not just enough to hear the word. We want to help you become doers of the word. And so instead of having one more Bible study per se, right, take some time to, to really apply the message. In fact, um, one of the things that I was really encouraged by um, at, at our camp, and, and I appreciate Billy's wisdom in this, that, that uh, when we were planning this, he said, hey, listen, how about we not do two sermons every day? And that's typically the kind of camps that we do. We do a sermon at night, assuming a sermon in the morning, a sermon at night. And, and, uh, and, and, and he said, well, why don't we just do one at night and then make the morning session a time where we really give our staff people opportunity to sit down in small groups, right, um, and, 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 and flesh out that message and really talk about that message instead of just, you know, giving them 20 minutes of cabin time at night when the kids were already like falling asleep on their bunks, right? And you're not going to have a whole really good conversation about the truth that they heard that day. And it worked brilliantly. It was powerful. It really was powerful, that kind of dynamic duo of the public exposition, but also the personal application of the Word of God. And so Ezra and the Levites were, were making it understandable and applicable so people could receive it in their lives. And so you need to revere the Word, receive the Word, but notice you also need to rejoice in the Word. This this is a this is a mark of revival. When you start getting excited about the Word of God, well, notice before you can laugh and rejoice, sometimes you it starts with mourning and weeping. Notice how the people took the, the message that they heard very seriously and they were overcome with emotion verse 9, the Nehemiah who was the governor and Ezra the priest and scribe and the Levites who taught the people said to all the people this day is holy to the Lord your God. Do not mourn or weep for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law. In fact, you can go on to chapter 9 and the whole whole of chapter 9 is all about them confessing their sin. They were broken and contrite over their sin and they asked God to forgive them for being so forgetful and wandering away from him. And so so. This was a time of mourning, right? People were broken over their sin. However, uh, this feast was to be a time of rejoicing. That's how why it was originally intended, right? They were supposed to be celebrating their, their homecoming. Um, and, and so it was meant to be a joyous celebration. So Nehemiah says, Go, eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who is nothing prepared, for this day is holy to our God. Do not be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed all the people, saying, Be still, for the day is holy. Do not be grieved. All the people went away to eat, to drink, to send portions, and to celebrate a great festival, because they understood the words which had been made known to them. So yes, God punishes sin. God hates it, he punishes it, but he also blesses repentance and obedience, which is a reason to celebrate. And so in spite of their sin, right, God hadn't wiped them out completely, which he could have, but by his grace, he had brought back a remnant from captivity. This was a day of rejoicing. The Bible talks about how the word should have that effect in our hearts, Psalm 19, 8, the precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. Psalm 119, 111, I have inherited your testimonies forever. They are the joy of my heart. Psalm 119, verse 162, I rejoice at your word as one who finds great spoil. Like, whoa, I just, I just found this treasure. Imagine, right, stumbling across like half a million dollars somewhere, like stuffed away in a, some closet in the house you just bought, right? And you come across, you're like, whoa, you would be really excited, right? Jeremiah 15, 16, your words were found and I ate them and your words became for me a joy and delight of my heart. Listen, um, I love, where'd you go, Donald? His testimony that he, 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 for the first time, wanted to have his quiet time. He didn't just do it because somebody told him to do it or he felt guilty like he, had to, he was obligated to do it. He just wanted to do it. Why? It brought him great joy to be in God's word, right? That's a, that's a result of revival a mark of revival, that that God grants you a love for His Word and a desire to obey it. And that's really the last point here, is, is not only do you need to revere the Word of God and receive the Word of God and rejoice in the Word of God, you also need to respond to the Word of God. And I didn't read this section, but basically verses 13 to 18 are all about how they uncovered uh, the feast of booths that they they hadn't been practicing the feast of booths somewhere it got gotten got lost in the in the shuffle of, of their sin and their rebellion against the lord their compromise their exile right the bondage to the babylonians and it says on the second day the heads of the fathers households of all the people the priests and the levites were gathered to Ezra to, 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 to describe that every that they might gain insight into the words of the law in other words they are going back hey Teach us the word of God some more. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in booths during the feast of the seventh month. So they're like, "Hey, wait a minute! It's it's the seventh month, and, and the Bible says we're supposed to be living in booths. And you know, the feast of booths was where they'd go out and they'd build these little huts, right? And uh, it was to remind them, uh, and they would move outside of their house and live in a little tent or little hut. Uh, for that, for, for so many days, and that was to remind them of their wandering in the wilderness. And it was so, to, to rejoice and make them happy about, hey, it wasn't God good? Wasn't God faithful? And it was also to anticipate them coming into the promised land. And so are like, hey, we, we haven't been doing this. We need to do this. And so they proceeded to tell the people, hey, go cut down trees and bushes and get whatever you need to build your little hut, your little booth, because we're going to do this thing. And so they reinstituted the the Feast of Booze. And again, verse 18, just to wrap it up, notice he says, he read from the book of the law of God daily from the first day to the last day, and they celebrated the feast seven days, and on the eighth day there was a solemn assembly according to the ordinance. The point is they responded to the word of God. They heard it. They didn't just hear it, but they saw something that they weren't doing that the Word commanded them to do, and so they said, we need to repent, and we need to do it. Sometimes it's the other way around. You see the Scripture telling you to do something that you're not doing, and you're like, I need to repent, I need to start doing it. That's a, that's a requirement for revival, is to be responsive to the Word of God. If you're, if you're being disobedient, don't expect any revival to come anywhere near you, right? But if you're being obedient to the Word and wanting to honor the Lord and His Word, then, then, then you're a prime candidate for revival. And I think this is also the result of revival. J.I. Packer said this, Congregations never honor God more than by reverently listening to His Word with a full purpose of praising and obeying Him once they see what He has done and is doing and what they're called to do. God is not honored by us just coming together and, and listening to his word if we're not committed to doing something about it, right? This this, this right here is a means to an end. So, so the question, I was talking to some guy earlier this morning, and, 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 and I said, I am haunted, I am haunted by the question, so what? That I know people are asking every Sunday morning. You might not audibly ask that, right? But in your mind, you're thinking, okay, I just heard this message. So what? What does that have to do with my life? That's a great question you should be asking yourself, right? You should ask yourself that question after every sermon, and, and hopefully if the preacher is doing his job right, he's giving you some, 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 some ways to think that through. Let me, let me give you some, some so what's, right? Um, but hopefully, ultimately, the Spirit of God is doing that, right? And taking a message that I was thinking, I'm going to, hopefully this is the point of this message, right? And, and I'm preaching this message that has this particular point, And you walk out of here and you meet me at the door and say, man, pastor, thanks so much for saying this because it really impacted my life. And this has happened before. They said, hey, thanks for saying this. And they say what, what I didn't say. I, I never said that. Trust me, I know what I said, okay? And I didn't say that. What is that? That's the spirit of God speaking to that person to, and saying to them what they needed to hear this morning. And so that's where it's just humbling and a good reminder for me that God doesn't need me, right? He doesn't need me. He, he's, he can do just fine speaking to you uh, without me. But when you get the Word working, right, and you're throwing out the Word, we know that God's Word never returns what? Void. It always accomplishes its work. And so this is just one example here of how every revival in history has been sparked and sustained by the exposition of God's word. Listen, there's a reason why we put so much emphasis on the preaching of God's word. Because this is the flashpoint for revival, amen? And uh, trust me, there ain't going to be any revival happening if you guys just come and listen to me every week, right? Or we just do a bunch of skits and, 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 and show a bunch of videos and, 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 and impress you with um, some entertaining music, right? That, ain't gonna, that, that is not the prescription for revival. Oh, you might leave here feeling really warm and fuzzy, right? And really good, but it's not true biblical heart, right? Changing revival. Walt Kaiser said this. He said, Let the word of God be proclaimed with all of its authority, power, and winsomeness. The Holy Spirit will show us once again what, what it means to have the mighty word of God joined by the convincing and convicting power of the Holy Spirit to change a people, a nation, and a church that has, for the most part, failed to preach the whole counsel of God to a waiting generation. He said, let us teach the whole counsel of God with a joy and passion that comes from above and may times of refreshing and revival break out all over the land once again to the glory of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for giving us your word so that we don't have to try to manufacture or program or make up uh, revivals, Lord, but as we just faithfully continue to put your word out there and explain it and apply it. Lord, that you will accomplish your work by your Spirit in our lives. And, and, and sometimes it catches us by surprise. Um, and you're faithful even when we're unfaithful. And, and when we, we haven't prayed as faithful as we should for revival in our own souls, Lord, sometimes you grant us that. Uh, and it sneaks up on us, and it's powerful, and we are so grateful for your your, your grace and your mercy in our lives. And so, Lord, would you help us to, to grow in our reverence for the word of God and, and, and just make us more uh, receptive and responsive to your word. And, Lord, that we would never underestimate or undermine the power of your spirit and your word. May it always be the priority of this church. For your honor and glory we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.